Hello and welcome to the April edition of On the Horizon, our monthly podcast dedicated to helping you to navigate through the tricking world of golf course turf maintenance by helping you to look and think a little further forward. I'm Henry Beshley from ICL. And I'm Glenn Kirby from Syngenta. This month, Henry will be asking the big questions like, will we see an April shower? Will Poa annua begin to flower? Or what variety of tea will Henry devour? Uh, It's a big month with lots of changes coming our way, Henry. Yes, indeed, Glenn. Uh, And maybe it's time to adjust our mindset a little as April should give us some very different things to be thinking about. Mm, And let's not forget, Henry, this episode marks the end of season one. 12 months of podcasts all completed and released in advance of that month giving you, the turf manager, a chance to think about your own turf maintenance strategies. So grab yourself a cup of tea and prepare yourself for what is coming in April. So, Glenn, what might the weather have in store for us in April? Well, as always, Henry, we start with moisture. The drying trends that we saw in February and March are really starting to ramp up now. Rainfall continues to reduce... And in fact, I'm a little surprised at just how dry April tends to be. Having grown up being told all about April showers, I I think I'd just, just associate April with being a wet month. But actually, the data just doesn't reflect that. For both of our sites, Henry, we've seen some incredibly dry Aprils. We're seeing rainfall somewhere around 20 mil, and and that's not unusual. And and last year, 2021, was one of the driest. You only saw six millimetres of rain last April, and we saw just 10 millimetres. Yes, I remember April last year up north being very dry. But was that unusual, Glenn, or was it just a commonly occurring extreme? Well, we've only seen one really wet year in April in the 14-year data set that I've got, Henry, and that was back in 2012, where we both saw about 130 millimetres of rain in April. In recent years, it's always been pretty dry, so last year wasn't actually that unusual on the rainfall front. Right, Okay. so those agronomic odds are really stacked towards a dry one then. Yeah, but to really understand what April looks like from a moisture point of view, we also need to look at the evapotranspiration, which has moved on again from March's 41 millimetre. Um, It's moved on to 55 millimetres for you on average and 57 millimetres for us on average. So that is ramping up then. But again, Glenn, do these averages hide the variation? How wide a range uh, might we expect to get in April in terms of evapotranspiration? Well, the range is kind of low 40s to mid 60s, Henry. So anything from averaging one and a half millimetres a day to over two millimetres average moisture loss per day. So we are in genuine drying out territory here. Yes. And thinking back to the rainfall figures you just mentioned, are we potentially moving to some, you know, like genuinely firm surfaces in April? You know, which we last saw some months ago. 
We could well be, Henry. The drydown is best understood, though, in some really kind of simple figures. If we start looking at rainfall minus those evapotranspiration figures, we start to understand it a bit better. And in April, the odds are really stacked in favour of drying out. Eight of the last 14 years, evapotranspiration has been significantly greater than rainfall. Five of those years have been about break-even, and only one year has there been significantly more rain than evapotranspiration. OK, and we touched on this last month, didn't we? Because in March, although we thought it was going to be a drying month, we didn't think the turf would be exhibiting any moisture stress because the other stress factors, such as high temperatures, weren't there in March. But we've moved on a month, haven't we? And I'm wondering whether the other stresses start to arrive in April. Do we get anywhere near stressful temperatures, for instance, in April, Glenn? Well, the highest temperatures we've seen in April, they are higher than I expected. You saw 22 degrees once, and we've seen 22 degrees so there is potential for some heat to be about and what generally happens is the day that warmer weather arrives is the day that starts to highlight all the stresses that have built up in the run-up to that day. Uh, but I can tell you Glenn uh, for sure that in Yorkshire in April those temperatures really aren't normal. No, they are not normal. The daytime average for both of us is 13 degrees. So that really highlights what the normal temperature would look like. Um, we're much, much lower than the extremes. You know, those 25 degrees that we are capable of seeing, 13 is far more representative. Yeah, that feels about right. Um, OK, so talking of lower temperatures, what are the minimums for April? Well, these are low, Henry, where your lowest recorded temperature is minus 4.2 and ours is minus 6.4. So it can still be brutally cold in April. In fact, April is our biggest swing month, Henry. Ooh, what do you mean by that? Well, the swing month, it's the difference between the coldest temperature recorded and the highest temperature recorded. 32 degrees for both of us between the lowest and the highest, Henry. No other month comes close to offering such a wide range of potential temperatures. Yeah, that yeah, that really is all over the place, isn't it? Um, OK, so what about the minimum averages then, rather than just the extremes? Well, the minimum, the, the kind of minimum average is three degrees for you, Henry, and it's four degrees for us. So we're sneaking towards growing temperatures overnight, but on average, mm. we're still falling short by a couple of degrees. Yeah. OK, so it's still cold overnight and with the potential to stay cold during the day, I think. Daytime temperatures can be high, but the averages indicate that they don't usually stay high for that long. So, Glenn, how long can we expect our warm spells or waves of growth to be in April? We spoke about the spring waves last, last month, didn't we, with what we called phase one being the onset of growth. But in March, those conditions came in very sort of short-lived waves as the, as the sort of climatic conditions ebbed and flowed around those conditions where growth starts to initiate. And then they trend towards phase two or the, the arrival of consistent growth later on in May. Um, so April is bang in the middle of that journey, Glenn. What's the best we can hope for in terms of those waves of growth during April? Well, we're talking about average temperatures for a 24-hour period here, Henry. And for you in Ilkley, you see on average six days above 10 degrees in April. 
And for us down south, we see on average 12 days above 10 degrees in April. And when you look at it on a spreadsheet, you can really see it staring you in the face. Those waves that we spoke about last month are really clear. Sometimes they're three or four days in a row. Sometimes we'll get 10 in a row. Those warm breaks come in blocks or waves, and they tend to get stronger towards the end of the month. Some years, however, will show some more, some will show less. And 2020 versus 2021 are a classic case of extremes. 2020, lockdown year, we saw solid blocks of decent temperatures above 10 degrees or above average 10 degrees for a while. For, for me, I saw a block of nine days at the beginning of the month and then a block of 12 days at the end of the month. And for you in that same 2020 year, you saw a block of six days above 10 degrees on average. It started around the 8th of April and then a block of three days at the end of April. Yeah, OK. Well, it's definitely better than you than for me. Um, so mm. 2020 was a good year. Not that great really for me, although maybe I might be just too demanding. <laughs> but even in a good year, you know, it's obvious that we still need to be patient. And just almost like looking out for those waves and being ready to take advantage of them when they when they come. Mm, patient indeed, Henry, especially if 2021 is anything to go by, which was an absolute dog. If you thought 2020 was bad, which was one of your best, then have a little think back to last year where you saw nothing for the whole month. Not <laughs> one day with an average above 10 degrees last year for you, Henry. And um, we only saw one two-day block with an average of 10 degrees and over. Um, and that start, didn't hit us until the 20th of April. So very, very poor year last year. Yeah, it was it was really rubbish, wasn't it? Um, it just everything standing still for for the whole month when we're looking to crack on, obviously. But how how unusual was that? How unusual was April twenty twenty one? It was freaky, Henry. From a temperature point of view, anyway, it was incredibly cold, and it's the only year in my data set that looks anything like that. Okay, so last year was unusual. Hopefully, it won't happen this year. You know, it just offered absolutely nothing in terms of growth opportunities but you know are there any lessons that we that we could take from last year's experience well i think if we assume that 2021 is a worst case scenario the worst we can see then it kind of shows the work we need to do in order to ride that out if we assume that april is going to deliver no growth and we plan for that and it focuses in the mind on coming through winter really clean. But it was unusual, and the opportunities are usually there, but they are opportunities rather than stressful conditions at this time of year. And if you remember when we started this at the beginning, we started talking about exactly that, plant stresses. Yes, indeed. OK, so it sounds like April is likely to be a drying month. Uh, so obviously get your waterproofs out, everyone, now that we've said that. Evapotranspiration is likely to outweigh rainfall. Daytime temperatures are, are on the up, hopefully, with the potential to see an occasional day with high enough temperatures possibly to begin to show itself into some turf stress if combined with a dry period or if the stress is combined. The overnight temperatures will still be holding things back most likely, but the waves of growing weather 
are beginning to roll in, stronger and longer as the month goes on, uh, but they will still be interspersed with cold weather. So it all points to a potentially frustrating time, Glenn, uh, with it usually being colder and drier than we would hope for, um, making uh, the playing surfaces trickier to manage than anyone would like at this time yeah that's right i predict course managers up and down the country screaming grow won't you grow here we go the season is on us henry this is it this golfing season has arrived. Yeah, the Masters is the starting gun, isn't it, at the beginning of the month, and the p- competitive golfing season really gets going now. That's right. No longer are we talking about whether golfers should be patient or shouldn't they. They simply are not patient. Yeah, we're in the season and that's that. Now it's the time when we simply have to deliver. Uh, Of course, as we've highlighted in the climatic section, the weather conditions aren't likely to be stacked in our favour. But course managers are being asked to deliver and it is not going to be easy. That's right, because uh, growth, growth is not even a given, is it? And also there might be some stress in the game. Even irrigation is a real challenge at this point, isn't it? You know, should we, shouldn't we, is the big question at this time. There's that old chestnut about irrigation water being too cold to use at this time. Yeah, you hear that one floated around often, and there's some nice studies out there that have shown that one to be fake news, Henry. Um, Irrigation water in fine droplets pretty much matches the air temperature by the time it reaches the ground. So please... Don't let cold temperatures ever stop you irrigating if your soil moisture probe is telling you that things are too dry. Mm. But hopefully, Henry, it will be dry enough and we won't have high rainfall in the game and people won't be limiting root development by letting things dry down too far. Mm. And we could also have some really nice daytime temperatures about too. And there's also possible we've got some dry periods yeah, indeed. It can be absolutely perfect, can't it, in April for getting out there for a game, but not necessarily perfect for growth, Glenn. No, there's a mismatch here, isn't there? The desire to play a golf course that looks like the one they're seeing on television, but odds stacked in favour of a very challenging conditions to produce playing surfaces. You know, no wonder course conditions seem a long way away from the conditions that people are seeing on the television at this time of year. Yeah, looking forward to the Masters. Uh, do you think... It's a fair expectation, Glenn. Do you think they can reasonably expect their own courses to look anything like the ones on TV at this time? No, of course it's not fair, Henry. It's ridiculous. Um, And I I don't think anyone genuinely expects their course to look like Augusta, Henry. And I I think they kind of understand that budgets are going to be completely different. But I don't think any golfer fully understands the real challenges involved here. I think many really understand the staff limitations at their own club, let alone the amount of resources that are available at those big, high-end clubs on a normal day. Mm. And, And they certainly don't understand how those resources just exponentially increase in the build up to a televised event. And they wouldn't understand how tournament build-ups work either. You know, why Mm. would they? Well, exactly. I mean, tournament 
prep is a really complicated business, isn't it? Especially like peaking golf courses for televised events. And it's a specialist branch of greenkeeping and agronomy, actually. And the tour will bring their own staff in to assist with the final preparations. So why should a normal member of the, uh, of the public have any idea of any of this? You know, I suppose the job of any professional is just to make the difficult things look easy. So... You know, obviously, behind the scenes, there's a huge amount of work going on, but, you know, unnoticed. Yeah, and I I do genuinely wonder in this day and age how many people really want to give up that percentage of their life in hours and dedication to get golf courses into that condition. Um, You know, it's... I think the, the mindset has changed a little from when I started, um, but I don't want to reflect back on that like an old man. Anyway, a normal six-man team in the UK with weather conditions during April is a really, really different story to what you would be expecting in Georgia, USA, with unlimited resources and massive support and all of the technology that's available to them. Absolutely, Glenn. They've even got Micah Woods divoting the tees. Hi, Micah. <laughs> Yeah, so expectations are high, potential to deliver is low. How you come through April is all about how you navigated through the winter period, looking at things like disease on greens, traffic damage, worm casts, leather jackets, everything we've been banging on about since about last September. Mm. It really is never-ending autumn in the UK. Mm. But if you kept things clean, then things probably aren't too bad. But if things went wrong, then you really, really need Mother Nature just to throw you a line here. Yeah, and hoping those sort of consistent growing temperatures come sooner rather than later, Glenn. So, Henry, what are the risks that we might face in April? Well, Glenn, we can see that the level of expectation from the golfers is now reaching a fever pitch through April with the Masters out of the way, the days warming up, um, the sun shining and the course beginning to take shape. But the weather is not on our side yet, is it? And so I would say probably it's a really important time to communicate this situation to the members. Yeah, it's it's really important to add a level of appreciation to the situation at this time just to temper those membership expectations. This was a time where I'd be constantly trying to get the message across that although things were progressing nicely, we still needed the weather to play ball. Yeah, and we're probably not going to get there until the end of May, if the truth be told. Yeah, and May still feels like a lifetime away to me. Yeah, it does. And and, and so the golfers do need to be aware that it's far from an easy time for course maintenance. And each course is different. And from my agronomic experiences, this is always the time when the neighbouring course is widely reported to be playing extremely well. And why isn't Az doing the same? Yeah, those other courses local to you, it was always a frustration. But they could all be in their own different microclimates, and they will be. So they could be a bit warmer, so a stage on in their journey, or they could be lagging behind you in that kind of pre-phase one stage where the surfaces are kind of looking after themselves and not yet moved into this inconsistent growth yet. 
If your members are only making occasional visits, they aren't seeing the transition in the same way that they see on their own course. Um, they visit their own course far more often, so they see that transition in all its ugliness all the way through. Mm. And when they visit other places, they only get a snapshot in time. They do not see the whole journey when they go and visit somewhere else. So take it for what it is. Hopefully everyone will be uh, well on their way by this time with the early season renovations and recovery work, uh, you know, proceeding uh, full steam ahead in April with us, I think, you know, hoping to just ride those growing waves to when more consistent growth establishes next month. But in terms of the agronomic risks... Um, from what you were saying, we reckon that the agronomic odds are in favour of cold and dry conditions during April. The growth waves uh, will hopefully be rolling in at regular intervals and our job is to identify them and try to amplify and extend them uh, with the application application of some well-timed nutrition and we're in that period now aren't we the waves are starting to come henry so we've just got to be patient yeah and we might start thinking about the risks of an extended dry spell possibly leading to the soil becoming dangerously dry on the quiet to bring some plant stress into the game or maybe even some like soil hydrophobicity, which can start to become really troublesome at this time. Last month, we talked about getting those surfactants on early uh, for those dry sites. And I think that in April, that advice broadens out uh, to encompass all courses. Yeah, it's not just the dry sites we should be applying wetting agents to in April. Everyone is in the game now. Mm. The dry courses should have probably got started last month. Yeah. Um, the marginal growing conditions can lead to the emergence of uneven or differential growth with any coarse highland bent or even perennial ryegrass kicking off before the annual meadowgrass to create uneven surfaces right at the time when the golfers are expecting them to be smooth and true. And as we all know, this might well force the course manager into more aggressive practices such as i don't know closer mowing more intensive verti cutting brushing grooming etc than they would generally like to employ at this time when growth hasn't yet fully established and that could start paving the way to greater problems later on such as anthracnose or other diseases that might be related to a build-up of this kind of management stress. Yeah, and, and those anthracnose-inducing stresses can start this early, can't they? Yeah, they can. You know, it's the law of unforeseen um, sort of consequences, I suppose, Glenn, where you don't, later on, when you're getting loads of problems with something, you don't see where it truly began. And I think sometimes it can be this time when the intensity of the maintenance just starts to ramp up a little bit too much too much. I mentioned previously, Glenn, that I thought that using a plant growth regulator such as Primo Max might have a part to play during this phase. What do you reckon? Is it too early for Primo in April or should we should we actually be getting ready to bring it out at this time? Well, that's really dependent on how you came through the winter, Henry. If you're good and you're in surface presentation and polishing mode, go for it. Um, but if you're in recovery mode because of winter damage, 
and maybe hold back. Again, it depends on what kind of April we get and whereabouts in the country you are. But let's touch on Primo in a little more depth a bit later on, Henry. Okay, great. Let's do that because I think it might be uh, that might be really helpful. If we're if we're sticking to the risks, I I should say that there is a risk of overcompensating at this time by applying too much nitrogen, uh, uh, you know, in order to accelerate recovery or to cover up any agronomic deficiencies, and it it might produce almost like excessive top growth that could be at the expense of root development. And, and you know, this is the time when we want to encourage root development. So overdoing the nitrogen can be really self-defeating at this time. And again, it could bring serious consequences later on if we, if we haven't developed that root system. Um, so let's just try and keep the nitrogen inputs to a reasonable level during this time and maybe keep them at or below 25 kilograms of nitrogen per hectare for the month at most which could which would mean i suppose between four and six kilograms of nitrogen per hectare per week to keep things moving along and keep that recovery going given reasonable conditions to get us through those top dressings etc but far less might be needed if there isn't um, as much agronomic work to do the actual growth response will obviously be governed by the climatic conditions and so uh, you need to be in a position um, to take any chances at this time when they come along. Yeah, that's right. And, and you're going to touch a bit later on, aren't you? Look at annual nitrogen budgets. Yeah, that old chestnut. Actually, on on this line, if we're talking about growth, um, if we get some warmer soil temperatures, then type 2 fairy rings, for instance, can, can also provoke growth responses and cause uneven surfaces as well. There's plenty going on at this time, isn't there, Glenn? Yeah, April really isn't an easy month, is it, Henry? No, and, and on the same line, actually, um, we might also see some type 1 fairy rings um, causing some turf damage if that dry month materialises, for the lynx courses especially. And they can cause really significant problems of turf dieback, die can't they, Glenn? And, and they might warrant, you know, control. So the question is, I suppose, is it too early to think about treating those ferrings, Glenn, or is early good or preventative treatment? Um, is that good for, for controlling ferrings? Well, no, it's definitely not too early, Henry, to be treating. And there's a lot to think about here. So let's, let's take some time out to build on this one a little later, as April is definitely the time to be getting control of ferrings. Hopefully we won't see too many symptoms. Um, so we'll kind of touch on control rather than managing the symptoms a little bit later on. OK, Henry, I'm going to ask you, are there any risks of other diseases floating around? Well, I think only really under extreme circumstances, Glenn, uh, which is a real possibility, of course, or if you're taking your eye off the ball in some way. Uh, the development of anthracnose is certainly related to um, both uh, environmental or management stress and so if the turf is weak or in poor health coupled with additional climatic stresses hot dry conditions and compounded by an increased level of intensity of management pressure for the 
reason we previously discussed, then it might enter the game. Um, so you do need to be careful not to take too many liberties at this time. But good nutrition and overall cultural management should keep you out of harm's way at this time. You may see some microdosium patch disease flare-ups at this time also if temperature and moisture is in the right area but it doesn't tend to be too damaging if reasonable growth is in the game. Um, Glenn do you think there's an there there might be or there's possibly a need for fungicide applications against the development of disease at this time? It might be Henry but it's unlikely look I'm I'm a big fan of letting disease grow out during April and this kind of period of the year. Unlike the autumn where growth has gone and we won't see it again for months, in April growth should just be round the corner. However, I did completely regret this advice last year as the cold weather just dragged on forever. Mm. But that's not the normal conditions. And um, if we're playing the odds, the odds are stacked in favour of growth rather than Mm. what we saw last year. But what I would do is I'd put some Instrata Elite on the shelf and I'd set yourself a disease threshold and I'd be watching the weather like a hawk. Just put yourself in a position to pull the trigger when it's moving further along than you want it to and if the weather forecast looks like it's not playing ball now there is always a chance that that application could tie in with your fairy ring application too so get yourself organized on that one listen to what we've got to say a little bit later on in the podcast because there may be some opportunities to tie a couple of things together here if things break that way and you're organized very good glenn and Moving on, I, I, I still presume that we're in the thick of leather jacket activity, depending on the conditions, and I assume our focus would still be on those uh, mitigation strategies that we discussed last month. Yep, indeed. So listen back to last month's podcast if you missed it for a bit more advice on what to do during these colder spring months. Uh, We could even see some crane flies on the wing or hatching towards the end of the month. And that's good news because it means the weather is warming up. And we tend to see that in the south first before anywhere else. So keep monitoring with your black plastic sheets. Uh, Keep sending your sightings into Pest Tracker and um, let us know when you see those crane flies starting to hatch. Okay, Glenn, thanks for that. So April is a strange time. It could actually bring anything in terms of the weather, but the agronomic odds are stacked in favour of it being dry, but still a little colder than we would like for both of us, actually. April is never an easy ride and there will undoubtedly be setbacks Um, but the key is to keep your eye on that horizon and be ready to take advantage of any opportunities for growth when they come along indeed henry best of luck everybody now i'm just about ready for a cuppa but when we come back let's make some time to talk about uh what was it plant growth regulator programs nitrogen budgeting And also, let's start thinking about fairy ring prevention. Sounds good to me, Henry. Get the kettle on, Glenn. Welcome back to part two of On the Horizon with Glenn and Henry. And this month, we are thinking about April. But before we get into the important stuff, let's focus on the really important stuff. Mm. Henry, 
What are you drinking? Well, Glenn, I'm blending this month after Ashley expressed extreme disappointment with my move to peppermint tea last month. I took it to heart, I gave myself a good talking to and went back to a more solid brew. Uh, you're blending, Henry. What's that all about? I've, I've, I've tank mixed many things in my time, but I've never, ever tank mixed a cup of tea. Right, well, I, I, I'm blending Yorkshire tea and Earl Grey in the teapot, Glenn. A grey Yorkshire, Henry? Yeah, something like that, Glenn. Mm, how is it? Well, it's strong and fragrant, Glenn, but in a manly way. Oh, Henry, I'm not sure you can say that in this day and age. Oh, how about in an earnest way? Uh, yeah, you'd probably get away with that one, Henry. Um, anyway, uh, are you ready for Harrogate? Yes, I'm really looking backward to it, Glenn. It being last month, obviously. We're in April now, Glenn. Come on, get with it. Oh, yeah. Um, I was actually, on, on that point, I was actually at the, the Ireland conference recently and it was really great to catch up with everyone. So I'm hoping for more of the same this year at, at Harrogate because obviously we're recording before we go. Yeah, look, I know BTME is March and I know we're talking about April, but we are recording in March, so don't give me any of that. Anyway, <laughs> we're going next week. Are the On The Horizon membership gifts ready? Uh, yeah, I think so. Kevin tells me that they're, they're, they're in the bag. Excellent. So remember to come and see us. A listener approaching On The Horizon. And if you say that, you get to claim membership to our very exclusive club. Yes. Anyway, back to the tea, Glenn. Uh, what are you drinking this month, Glenn? Well, I'm enjoying a black coffee and a custard cream, Henry. Ooh, a dunker, Glenn. Normally, but black coffee and Dunkin' feels a little wrong to me. <laughs> right. In what way? Well, it's like dunking a biscuit in water, Henry. It's just weird. Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, before we get caught up in the politics of dunking, which I fear is a rabbit hole we would never, ever come out of, we should discuss next season. After all, with 12 episodes complete, we agree we'd mark the change. The switch to season two with a change of music. So Ooh. we've had a little look around and we've got a couple of options. Ooh, a song contest, Glenn. You know how much I love a song contest. So what are the options? Well, we've got two options that we'd like to run past everyone because we really value what everyone out there thinks. And we're going to listen to what you say and then we're going to make a decision about what we like. Um, so here's option number one, Henry. Take it away. Hello and welcome to season two of On The Horizon. I'm Henry Turf Mother Bechelet from ICL. And I'm Glenn Kirby from Syngenta. This month, Henry, we'll be asking, do you love to rock? <laughs> or option two. <laughs> or option two, Henry. Take it away. Hello and welcome to season two of On the Horizon. I'm Henry the Dude Beshley from ICL. And I'm Glenn Kirby from Syngenta. This month, Henry, we'll be asking, do you like 
to swing. I do, Glenn. <laughs> Is that another reason uh, for people to come to see us on the stand, Glenn? The song choice, I mean, not the swinging thing. Sure, why not? Um, come and let us know what you think. Anyway, welcome back to part two. What have we got to talk about, Glenn? Well, we've got loads to go through now, Henry. Let's focus on plant growth regulators, fairy ring and nitrogen budgeting. Oh, a bit rocky there in the end, I noticed, Glenn. Very good. Anyway, look, let's just crack on. OK, Henry, I'm going to try and cover a few things here. Firstly, what does Primo do? Then why is it valuable, particularly this year? And thirdly, how can we build better programmes? I don't know about you, Glenn, but I've still got that kind of uh, rock thing going on in my head. Um, but anyway, yeah, look, look, really looking forward to this. So uh, let's do some myth-busting. Right, to start with, Henry, Primo Max is a gibberellic acid inhibitor. It blocks the amount of gibberellic acid being produced. And gibberellic acid is the hormone that makes the plant elongate and stretch out. Right, so by inhibiting gibberellic acid production, Glenn... What do we achieve? Well, we condense growth, Henry. We don't really stop growth. We just make it more stunted and compressed, giving us a thicker and denser sward. And uh, is that the only benefit? Uh, no, no, it's not, Henry. We're removing less clippings. We're creating tighter putting surfaces where it's easy to do. You know, it's easier to achieve our desired putting speeds. And we're packing more chloroplasts into the plant, which altogether helps to create a stronger photosynthetic engine to help power photosynthesis. Mm. Now, there are even more benefits too, Henry. The reduced upright growth means that we are removing less clippings, and that can mean less fertilizer usage or more efficient nitrogen usage. Mm. US studies showed that around 25% reductions in end usage were possible by using Primo. Now, take that for what it is, and I suspect most people in the UK who are using Primo have already built that nitrogen reduction into their programs already. Yes. I mean, it is a miracle product, isn't it? And I think we're going to touch on that later on, aren't we? Yeah, indeed. And I suspect most courses in the UK are already pretty close to their minimum levels of nutrition on greens already because a long history of Primo use has probably enabled them to push them to those lower levels. So mm. if you're on a pre-row program, I wouldn't take that advice that I've just given and drop your N input by 25% on the back of this simply. But if you've never used Primo before and you're just introducing it into your program, then you'll probably find you'll get more out of your nitrogen than you did previously. But it could be a useful thing to think about with teas, approaches, fairways this season. Okay, so we've created a denser plant with benefits, Glenn. You know, those tighter denser putting surfaces that have uh, greater wear tolerance and, and such, partly because of this interaction with nitrogen and partly because, as you mentioned, we've got more chloroplasts in the cells creating that better photosynthetic engine, as you put it. But you haven't really talked about the benefits, you know, of that fundamental um, turf response of reduced clippings. No, no, I haven't, Henry. For, for me, the, the change in morphology and improved health of a plant is the biggest win. Clipping reduction, mm. uh, for putting surfaces anyway, comes a close second. 
Yeah, okay. Um, But what about for larger areas such as fairways? Uh, Now, in those areas, Henry, traditionally, course managers haven't really embraced the labour-saving elements of Primo. What they tend to do is apply it to larger areas and continue to mow the same as they would have done without it. Mm. And, And what that's done is it's helped them get much better quality surfaces. But with the current labour market... Yeah, I've, I've lost count of how many people sort of telling me that they're looking for staff. And the cost of fuel at the moment? That is horrendous, isn't it? I paid, what is it, you know, over £1.80-odd uh, a litre for diesel yesterday, Glenn. Yeah, and the challenge wrapped up around fertilisers, and we don't need to talk about that much more. Um, no. Maybe now is the time to start thinking a little bit differently about Primo yeah. and, and maybe using it to save labour and fuel rather than just spray and mow as normal. Yeah, that is very relevant for the moment, I think, Glenn. You know, of course, every setup and course environment is different, but that benefit is is really worth sort of taking seriously again. Yeah, and if we look a little further down that horizon, Henry, with the rise of autonomous mowers trundling around, I suspect in the future there's going to be some close relationships between those two things that could be quite closely connected, Mm. potentially leading to minimal labour, reduced fuel and higher quality turf. Mm. Yeah, certainly worth thinking about. Okay, so what about building that PGR programme then. What's the best way to go about using Primo properly, Glenn? Well, in summary, and you can just jump forward to the next bit after this if you don't want the detail. In the summer, apply every 14 days. In the cooler times, apply every 30 days. Hmm. And if the weather's in between, then apply in between. Hmm, very simple. Mm. Look, Primo degrades based on temperature, Henry. The warmer it is, the shorter it lasts. The cooler it is, the longer it lasts. And you can use the Growth Degree Day calculator on the Syngenta website to help guide you on this. Now, there's a few misconceptions that I regularly see wrapped up around Primo and this subject, Henry. Ooh, myth-busting alert. Uh, yeah, now, firstly, people tend to think of Growth Degree Days as how long the product lasts. That is not the case. And I slip into this trap occasionally and I really have to work hard to break the habit. I'll say something like Primo will last 200 growth degree days at a base temperature of zero. But what I actually mean is when you reach 200 growth degree days, it's time to reapply. It's a subtle difference and a very bad habit. And it's a bad habit because Primo doesn't just stop working like I imply sometimes. It slowly degrades. It, you know, it degrades to a point where it's doing very little. And then possibly you could see a bit of rebound where you start to see clippings rise more than they would have done in an untreated area. Yeah, OK, fine. Get that. OK, so Primo degrades over a period of time. It doesn't just stop. It is not a time bomb that reaches a day and then explodes. You know, in order to apply again before the Primo degrades completely, we'd recommend applying two greens at around 200 growth degree days with a base temperature of zero. If you apply sooner than that, then you'll build the amount of Primo in the plant and you'll build the levels of growth diversion and clipping reduction. If you apply later than that, then the growth diversion will revert back to normal and therefore so clipping reduction will also revert back to normal. Right. 
So we are aiming at 200 growth degree days as an application interval rather than expecting growth to explode or rebound on the day after you reach that figure. Indeed. And a lot of people don't really get this, Henry. Clipping reduction is simply reduced by Primo. You'll still see peaks and troughs in growth, even if you're under a very good program. Those peaks and troughs will come from temperature swings, moisture level, sunlight, fertility. Primo cannot impact and control those inputs. So it won't even out those peaks and troughs. It may soften them slightly because a 20% reduction in clippings on a day of high growth is more than a 20% reduction of clippings on a day of low growth, but it doesn't remove those peaks in, in, in the growth that you get. It just can't do it. Okay, so does the plant get stunted or something? Um, what's going on? Well, just imagine that the clipping yield you're getting on a normal day, just picture that without Primo, and then reduce it by 20%. That 20% growth hasn't stopped, it's just been invested sideways in the plant. So you've got more oh. tillering, you've got more density going on. OK, I see. And what happens when we get close to that reapplication figure of, of 200 growth degree days then? Well, that's when the Primo decline is kind of on its way, Henry. Sometime around then, we will begin to reduce beyond the point that is really useful. But it's not a switch that instantly switches off. What I tend to hear from people is, ah, we hit 200 growth degree days and the grass just exploded. Now, if it did, you know, if we did get that big spike in growth, it's unlikely it had anything to do with Primo. The transition from clipping reduction to rebound is a slow one. If you do see a spurt in growth, it's likely that growing conditions have kicked in and that has caused the spurt. Now, if you've got a good Primo program in place, those spurt, that additional clippings would have been reduced by about 20 to 30%. If it's run out or running out, then it would probably be exactly the same as an untreated area. Or if you've gone into rebound, which is usually much, much later than 200 growth degrees, you'll see slightly more clippings in an untreated area. The explosion in clippings isn't Primo just stopping. It'll be another set of factors that all combine. Now, remember, we never change the amount of growth. We just redirect that growth to a different part of the plant. OK, Glenn, I think you better give us a summary. OK, so use Primo at about 14 day intervals in the summer. In the cooler periods of the year, spray around every 30 days. And in between, uh, the Greencast Growth Degree Day Calculator guides you. Use 200 growth degree days as a base temperature zero as an application interval guide because six degrees measures grass growing opportunities, but zero degrees will measure product degradation, which is what we're interested in here. I fully recommend that people look at it and give the GDD calculator a go on the Syngenta Turf website, but use it as a guide. Do not let it rule your life. Primo is not a time bomb, Henry. No, it's just a friend with benefits, Glenn. OK, Henry, let's talk about fairy rings. April is the month we should begin to think about their prevention just to get ahead of the game. Yeah, it definitely is, because 
soil temperatures are likely to be on the rise, as we know, and moving towards the conditions suitable for fungal activity. And fairy ring, as we know, are caused by soil-borne fungi. Indeed, there's three types of fairy ring that we should be aware of, and each type requires slightly different considerations. They're all circular, outward-growing fungal growths. They express different symptoms depending on how they impact the turf. There are, and I always get this mixed up in my mind, so I've written it down, Glenn. Type 1 fairy rings are those which exhibit dead areas of turf. Uh, Type 2 fairy rings exhibit exhibit, uh, a green or stimulated zone, and type 3 fairy rings exhibit fruiting bodies such as mushrooms, Glenn. Now, the type 1 fairy rings are the most damaging, aren't they, Henry? Because they cause the grass cover to die back. And this is caused by the action of the fungi rendering affected areas water repellent. Type 2 fairy rings are more superficial. They just exhibit an area of stimulated growth. But this can be disfiguring and a cause for concern. But it can also affect playing qualities too, especially with low mowing frequencies. Type 3 fairy rings can be problematic in terms of aesthetics, but especially if the mushrooms are known to be poisonous, which can be the case. Yeah, absolutely. So I suppose the job when considering fairy rings is to ensure that uh, undue damage is prevented from happening. Type 1 fairy rings, as you said are caused by, or the dieback is caused by the development of hydrophobic conditions. And so we would treat uh, known areas that are likely to be affected uh, in such a way with a surfactant to uh, try to overcome the soil hydrophobicity and, and allow us to maintain plant health if we possibly can, rather than it dying back. In terms of type 2 fairy rings, we might be able to maintain affected areas with regular mowing, for instance, or their impact could be distorted diminished through fertilisation, if appropriate, or plant growth regulators, maybe, Uh, or with the use of pigments also, if appropriate. But generally, type 2 fairings are not so problematic. Yeah, but there are certainly instances where we do need to use fungicides to control fairings, for instance. If type 1 fairings are present in golf greens or cloth mown turf, stuff that's being deliberately kept dry such as on a lynx course then those type one fairy rings can cause significant amounts of dieback yeah and even with the intensive use of wetting agents or surfactants they can still cause problems so sometimes fungicidal control might be appropriate and actually very much needed if they are sort of you know becoming too damaging if that is the case glenn um thinking about that what should we be thinking of in terms of fungicide use? How do we achieve control? And is there any special advice on application or timing of that fungicide that we should know about? Um, I think managing expectations is an important place to start, Henry. We need to carefully consider what our expectations of a fungicide are on fairing. Um, Are we expecting to control it completely? Are we expecting to eradicate it? Or are we just looking to soften the symptoms? But we need to be realistic about what we're expecting here. Now, from a chemical point of view, the only fungicides with fairing on the label in the UK are Heritage WG and Heritage Max. Both can be used in a long-term strategy to deal with fairy ring. They are unlikely to eradicate it first time of application. 
Now, careful thought needs to be placed around the timings and best practice um, when we're applying this. And we want to be putting it down in the temperature range when that soil temperature range is between kind of 12 to 15, which is when the fungal activity will just begin to commence. Now, for most areas of the country, that is going to be somewhere around mid-April and possibly going through to the end of May, depending on where you are and what the year is looking like. So we need to be thinking about this in the month ahead of us. Not necessarily pulling the trigger on it yet, but we need to be ready with the right products on the shelf, ready to go, if we get that mild spring. Now, the further north you go, the longer it takes to get to those temperatures. So for some, this may well be leading into May, possibly June, or even the really northern areas of the country up in Scotland could even be July. So it's really worth keeping an eye on those soil temperatures to look for those optimum ranges. Okay, so um, in terms of frequency of application, how many treatments are required or generally required to achieve that good level of control? Well, the data supports two applications at 14-day intervals during that period, uh, with the product being watered into an appropriate depth to maximise the amount of active ingredient reaching the area of activity. Now, now here is the challenge, Henry, because for each fungi or each fairy ring in each different soil type, that will be slightly different so understanding where you're trying to target would be really helpful to optimizing your application okay so what are we looking out for in terms of targeting the depth of the fungicide application if we take soil samples out for instance will we see the zone that is being affected by the fungi Oh, well, there are over 60 different fungi associated with this problem, Henry, so each one will manifest itself slightly differently. But I, what I would expect to see is hydrophobic, strong water repellency in the regions that are affected. Uh, after all, fairy ring isn't a disease that kills turf. It's a fungi that alters the state of the soil so that grass growth is altered. Now, several fairy rings that I've taken core samples out of, you can clearly see the hydrophobic areas in the profile by dropping water droplets across the profile. And you can start to then see what depth the challenge is at. Now, that's going to be slightly different in all situations. The other thing you can do is put those soil cores in a plastic bag with some moisture, keep them warm so you start to stimulate that activity in a forced environment. And that could possibly stimulate some mycelium activity and that would really help you identify exactly where it is in the soil profile. But because of the variables involved here, there's no guarantees on either of those. But they're definitely worth trying to help identify the depth of the problem. The other method I often wonder about, Henry, but I've never tried, is using your soil moisture probe across that profile of the fairy ring to exact understand exactly what's going on in the root zone, both up and down the soil profile and across the ring itself, just to understand better what's happening. Never done it myself, but if it'd be interested if people can do it, uh, particularly with those cores, to if they could do it without breaking that up, I don't know. Um, but it would be a really useful tool to help you decide how you manage that challenge, how much water you need, and how you target it. So we would take samples out, identify the zone being affected by the soil-borne fungi, and possibly aerate to that depth, and then deploy appropriate water rates that would allow the fungicide to move down into that affected zone where it is required. Yeah, I, I think most people are aware of the high water volume concept and watering in when it comes to targeting fairy ring applications. I suspect not many people have really tried to dial that in to hit the optimum target. 
Um, I guess there's some possibility that in situations in the past we've overwatered and pushed the active ingredient down below the area of activity, or maybe over diluted that active ingredient. I guess at times we could have spiked too deep and bypassed it. Um, they would always still have an effect. But the more we can target the maximum amount of active ingredient to key areas, the better chance we've got of getting really strong results on what is a very difficult and tricky thing to manage. Yeah, indeed. Um, so in terms of the use of wetting agents, uh, we would generally be using them routinely on, on type 1 fairy rings to you know, mitigate the level of damage. But should we also be considering the use of those wetting agents to assist at the time of application to help the fungicide move down through the soil profile to where it is required? Well, it depends, Henry. The more information we can arm ourselves with by knowing where it is in your particular soil profile, the more chance we've got of having a really effective result. If we're finding that mycelium activity is right at the surface, which is a possibility, then we should probably consider applying it without a wetting agent. However, if it, the depth of it is two to three inches down, then we definitely should be looking to push the fungicide down further with higher water volumes and wetting agents. Ah, OK, very good. Good advice there, Glenn. So, plenty to think about, I would say, with regard to uh, fairy ring activity, uh, which might manifest itself at this time or a little later on. Uh, we got all those different types, so three different types of fairy ring causing uh, different levels of damage, and each of them would require a different strategy uh, to prevent them from adversely affecting the quality of the playing surfaces. Yeah, this isn't a disease of the plant. This is a fungi that alters the soil structure and either stimulates growth or makes it difficult for plants to grow. So when we're thinking about fairy ring management, I think we're really thinking about soil management and understanding this, how this fungi is adjusting the soil profile. Um, so I think we just need to frame it a little bit differently in our minds to understand how to manage it best. And um, I, I think with a little bit of foresight, we can move this forward. Absolutely, Glenn. Couldn't agree more. April is the time to prevent and reduce the impact of fairy ring down the road. We should make some more time later on in the year to uh, talk about management strategies once we see it in June or July. Yeah, yeah, that would be a good idea. OK, Henry, with fertiliser programmes beginning to start in earnest, hopefully... To make the most of those potential early season growth waves, I think it's a good time to think about our annual nitrogen budgets. Or how much nitrogen are we thinking about applying to our greens this season? Yes, Glenn. Our fertiliser programmes, as we all know, are central to the maintenance plan. And it's really important that we use our nutrition efficiently and with a really clear idea about how we would like it to maintain plant health and set growth responses in motion we, we we at all times we need to make sure that the nutrition is always fully attending to our wider agronomic goals now our annual nitrogen inputs or we could say our nitrogen budget for the year is obviously a key consideration for all turf manager uh, managers and it forms a part of that very foundation of all our greens maintenance plans. Yeah, nitrogen is so important, this fertiliser programme. And we talk about the importance of nutrition most months, don't we? Yeah, we do, and with good reason. 
All right, so let's just start with the numbers. Nitrogen inputs are usually expressed in the UK and Ireland as kilograms of nitrogen per hectare per year. And these are easily calculated. The sort of figures are usually presented in product literature, for instance. But that's not to say that unintentional errors or maybe convenient omissions aren't sometimes made. Because, Glenn, this really is an area that can give rise to a temptation to kid ourselves. Let's be honest. And that is never good. So did you calculate your nitrogen inputs for the year, Glenn, when you were a course manager? Yes, I did, Henry. And I'm not altogether sure I know exactly why I was doing it, uh, whether it made much difference or not. I think I was just trying to make sure that I wasn't unwittingly overdoing it. But I always felt a little bit paranoid that my end of year total would be regarded in some way as an indication of my greenkeeping skills or in some way that I could be doing it wrong. And if I was talking about it amongst a group of greenkeepers, I always felt a little bit exposed. It was it was a number that everybody knew. It was a bit like a game of greenkeeping top trumps. It was a very weird situation. Well, it is indeed, and it always has been. So, what figures would you be reaching for your end of year's totals for your greens then, if you don't mind me asking? I've got that horrible feeling again, Henry. I feel like I'm being mm. judged. <laughs> yeah. um, I suppose I suppose it was generally around 80 to 100 kilos of N per hectare per year on my soil greens and about 120 on sand greens. I can't honestly remember if they're the honest figures or the underinflated ones that mm. I would converse with people about. Mm. Um, even though I felt I was quite sparing with my inputs, I always felt this would actually be regarded as being too high and my fertiliser programme was at odds with sound greenkeeping principles. You know, those ones that have been handed down to me over the years. I always felt like that I should underinflate that number when I was talking openly about it. Uh, I, thought it I thought maybe I'd be perceived as a better greenkeeper and not judged um, of course, no one ever challenged me on it or said that's too much, but you did get the feeling that they were keeping a close eye on you. Mm, it's a bit like that in the agronomy fraternity, Glenn. We're in such strange territory with this, and I suppose this might be because the common reference point for golf turf nutrition in the UK is a book that was written 30 years ago at a time when the demands being placed on the greens in terms of standards and season length were very very different than they are now I do think Glenn that as an industry we still have quite an unhealthy attitude towards turf nutrition uh, that we don't talk openly uh, about it enough for fear of being uh, what like condescended to or unfairly judged uh, which is a completely ridiculous situation to be in in 2022 yeah i think you are absolutely right henry i think it's time to talk openly about it yes let's do that there is nothing to be afraid of glenn there is no such things as ghosts are you sure about that henry now, now tell me, is this really a safe space? Can I speak without judgment? <laughs> yeah, stop it, Glenn. You've got me at it now. Uh, anyway, pressing on, in terms of our greens and indeed all our fertiliser programmes, the nitrogen inputs are by far the most important element. Our success or failure might well hang on um, how we go about supplying it. And we need to think in terms of amounts, certainly, or and 
and also scheduling or phasing or allocation of those inputs. And of course, we also need to be aware of the different sources of nitrogen as well. But generally, or sort of overall, nitrogen, put simply, determines the level of growth to a large degree and the ability of the turf to withstand the demands being placed upon it. I think the first thing to say about annual nitrogen budgets or the amount that you intend to use on your greens is that they're not the be-all and end-all, Glenn. It's just an annual target or total um, that you're aiming to achieve. And it's quite a limited concept if just considered in isolation. What do you mean by that, Henry? Well, it doesn't tell you how you spent your budget, Glenn. You know, how the nitrogen was used throughout the year, which is way more important than the end-of-year total. You might have, you know, very different programmes all applying the same amount of nitrogen total but one could be front loaded one could be evenly spread and the other may be back loaded and even though they'd applied the same amount of nitrogen they would give very different growth responses and depending on the individual agronomic requirements they could all of them be either perfectly judged or completely disastrous or somewhere in between. You see, the annual total doesn't tell you how well you spent your nitrogen. Yeah, I think you're right, Henry. I'm not sure I was ever really tuned into the scheduling of my nitrogen as well as I could have been. Well, the level of nitrogen is obviously important and depending on the situation, higher or lower levels will be appropriate. And... The point is that with our job is that when putting together fertiliser programmes, we just need to hit the right level of nutrition at all times, not just to reach a total at the end of the year. We do still need to work them out, though, don't we? Yeah, because it's important to know that you're in the right area, but it's the way that you spend it that's more important. And so we need to build a plan and many people will be doing that now you know based on past experiences and and sort of hopefully a sort of sound agronomic review that that shows how to hit all the sort of agronomic requirements throughout the year but also allows us to sort of land close to that annual target. You know, nothing ever goes exactly to plan, but at least by having that target or that target range, you know how to get close to meeting those agronomic objectives in a reasonable way. Okay, so it's an important part of the planning and review process. What figure should we be aiming at then? Right, well, as an agronomist, uh, I would take every situation as it comes. Our starting point is always to review the level of inputs that have been employed in recent years and relate that to the performance of the turf and and possibly the agronomic issues being faced or that occurred during that time. And we do this to begin the process of deciding whether adjustments to the existing programme need to be made. And so Obviously, accurate calculations and records are needed to be able to conduct this meaningful review to allow us to understand the situation properly and and also, you know, to know when agronomic issues do crop up or whether, you know, that they were being attended to properly. The annual target figure 
will be influenced by a number of factors such as well turf performance but also grass types root zone types you've already mentioned that glenn background environmental conditions as we always talk about the intensity of maintenance and of course the standards being required throughout the year you know all the things that we talk about each month glenn and we would also focus on any underlying or persistent agronomic issues that keep occurring and need resolution such as either performance issues or maybe disease incidents you know anthracnose for instance being a big agronomic indicator then of course and let's not forget organic matter accumulation yeah or, or just generally poor plant health or moss invasion yeah there's loads of agronomic indicators aren't there um you know anything that that might indicate the adjustments in the in the fertilizer program might need to be made. Um, the, the you know the nutrition might not be at fault, but it's always in our mind as a factor that we might be able to tweak. You know to get a positive benefit. And as a member of the agronomist fraternity, I do think that um, an annual agronomic review, at the very least, is essential to make sure that everything is being pitched at the right level. Indeed, Henry, uh, but. All those agronomists all do tend to hold slightly different views, don't they? Especially on this subject. You know, you yeah. might get one who's all hellfire and brimstone when it comes to fertiliser, where others seem to be much more pragmatic. Yeah, you know, that is true. Uh, they're just as bad as everyone else, aren't they? Each to their own, of course. But I think you should find an agronomist that you can work with, which is another subject altogether, Glenn. Yeah, let's stick that one on the list and avoid it for today. Yeah, we? definitely. <laughs> Um, on the other hand, though, Henry, what about those dreaded fertiliser company representatives? Mm. Surely we need some protection from those highly persuasive salesmen all looking to load us up with lots of bottles and bags of unnecessary fertiliser. Yeah, that is generally the stance of the agronomic community, Glenn. And there is an element of that, of course. Um, but I think we should be able to sniff out the shysters pretty easily. As an agronomist who works for a fertiliser company, I can say that we don't see any benefit in giving bad advice or recommending over-egged fertiliser programmes because they only result in poor quality turf and lots of problems, which is not the best way of maintaining long-lasting and loyal relationships with our customers. That's not the way that we choose to do business because that would be stupid, Glenn. And I do find being called stupid a bit annoying. Do you think that's because you are a little bit stupid, Henry? Yes, I think you're probably right about that. I think I should probably just get over it, get that chip off my shoulder. Um, but anyway, there is so much baggage in this subject, Glenn, isn't there? Yeah, anyway, you were talking about setting up annual oh, targets yeah. <laughs> for nitrogen, Henry. Just get back on that. Yes. Forget about your stupidity and let's focus on agronomic matters. Yes, OK. Anyway, so look, as an aside, but a relevant one, I was watching this web webinar that was put out by Sturth, who are the, let me get this right, the Scandinavian Turf Grass Environmental Research Foundation, uh, which was publicising the latest edition of their Sustainable Nutrition Guidelines, which is based on scientific research and ultimately aims to give good practical advice to Scandinavian greenkeepers, which is 
brilliant, obviously. Yep, indeed. Yes, and it is an interesting listen, and you should check it out, Glenn, if you haven't already. Obviously, I objected to the implication that all fertiliser companies are just looking to flog you loads of unnecessary fertiliser. Come on, Henry, get over it now, mate. It's too soon, Glenn. But I do agree that there is too much unproven nonsense out in the marketplace that should be treated with extreme caution. Anyway, they've just produced their revised edition of their Sustainable Fertilisation Handbook, which is for Scandinavian greenkeepers, but it's worth checking out. Um, But the point is that in there they have guidelines based on their extensive trial programme for nitrogen input for golf green turf for established greens per season which is April to October in their case so actually shorter than ours and for power annual greens the guideline is 160 to 200 kilograms of nitrogen per hectare with creeping bent grass being about 20% lower and red fescue being about 50% of the um, annual meadow grass levels. Mm, now that is interesting Henry but but it is for a very different situation they are in a different climate. Yeah but not too dissimilar is it and their, sh- their season is shorter than ours in the UK and Ireland and I'm sure that the reason that you think that this is interesting is because those guidelines are undoubtedly higher than our default positions in the UK and Ireland and certainly higher than we would recommend as a company. And maybe we do underfeed, Henry. Maybe we don't use enough. Maybe we do, Glenn. But no, I think we should stick with our own experiences and agronomic processes But I think most people looking after Poa annual dominated greens in the UK and Ireland are at about 100 to 120 kilograms of nitrogen per hectare per year, if they were prepared to admit it, of course, with some higher in certain situations where there might be a higher demand. But in Ireland, I think generally they they run a bit lower than the UK, but that might be due to the higher creeping bent grass content. Yes, greenkeeping in Ireland is a very interesting subject. And Mm. I do know that the soil-based and sand-based greens at my previous club Mm. had very different requirements as well, although I don't ever think I've properly got to grips with it. No, it is difficult, Glenn, Um, and every situation is different. But from the Sturf work, I was pleased to see that we seem to be on the right side of things, but maybe we should take these figures as a possible indication that the nitrogen sweet spot um, might be slightly higher than we currently think. Yeah, and it could be a contributing factor as to why anthracnose is becoming such a big problem in the summer in the UK. Um, we might just be running things a little bit too lean in order to try and maintain those green speed targets that we mm. seem to seem to set ourselves. Yeah, running too lean is always dangerous, Glenn. Uh, as dangerous as running them or pushing them too hard, you know, with those heavy mowing units that Tom brought to light last month. Hopefully, the Sturf research will help people to put their programmes into a better context. I don't think there's a massive amount of overfeeding going on in the UK and Ireland. Probably the opposite, actually. But, but we we all know, right from the first day of our greenkeeping, that overfeeding, or indeed underfeeding, doesn't end well. 
But also, I ultimately feel, think that you shouldn't feel as if you're doing something wrong or be afraid um, to be honest about your nitrogen inputs if you are getting by at 110 to 120 kilograms of nitrogen per hectare per year for annual meadowgrass-dominated greens, Glenn. No, indeed. So you have mentioned that factors such as grass type, soil type and climate will all have an impact on your nitrogen budget, though. Mm. Is there anything else that we need to consider before we wrap this one up? Yeah, well, the intensity of the maintenance is the big one, Glenn, with with everyone striving to achieve, you know, those perfect surfaces. Uh, for as long as possible during the year with intensive mowing, grooming, verticutting, top dressing, etc., throughout the growing season. And actually, as, as trying to extend that growing season in any way that we can, that maintenance needs to be supported properly, doesn't it? With adequate nutrition, just to help the turf, you know, withstand it, but without any, you know, underlying agronomic decline. Or you could choose to back off a touch couldn't you or focus on smoothness instead of speed that might help indeed and we discussed that with tom last month didn't we um we we are getting to the absolute limit with these cutting heights now and i'm not sure how much fertilizer can help with that situation yeah there are limits glenn and the agronomic indicators are telling us that we are getting really close to the to the edge with the prevalence of anthracnose of silvery thread moss both pointing to an imbalance and you know as we say we would generally recommend trying to back off with the intensity of the maintenance but a tweak here and there or a proper fertilizer boost at times to help boost plant health or mitigate that self-imposed stress might help just set a a slightly better or more sustainable balance Mm, and we're seeing that aren't we more and more we're seeing those gradual turns towards the occasional summer granular boosts just to give greens a breather when that pressure begins to mount up yeah which is fine if you're working towards a reasonable annual nitrogen budget and your nitrogen inputs aren't spiraling out of control yeah it's all about phasing isn't it henry and allocating Mm. that nutrient or nitrogen input to attend to those specific agronomic goals rather than just feeding out of habit yeah and, and and that is the point of your annual nitrogen budget glenn to keep things in check but the way in which you allocate or spend that nitrogen will be dependent on the agronomic demands of the situation at any given time and this is why i prefer to talk about kilograms of nitrogen per hectare per week if we're wanting to create specific growth responses at particular times. Go on and give us an example. Right, okay. So as an example of a fertiliser programme, greens fertiliser programme throughout the year, we might think to deliver, for the sake of example, one to two kilograms of nitrogen per week through weeks one to 12 in the calendar, just to keep the turf from deteriorating under play during these mild winter conditions that we experience all the time. I should say we're not trying to fertilise every week, but just work out how much nitrogen on average is available during the course of a fertiliser application. 
Right. So then we might go up to five kilograms of nitrogen per hectare per week through weeks 13 to 18 for a bigger boost. Cold start, for instance, 11% nitrogen at 25 grams per meter square would deliver like 28 kilograms of nitrogen over six weeks. So around that five kilograms of nitrogen per week uh, level, which is why obviously people use it. This would create a bigger boost to help us get through our sort of early season recovery and top dressing and preparations. And it would also serve to amplify and extend those growth waves that might come along during that sort of transit transitional period. From weeks 19 to 40, when um, more consistent growth has been established, we might settle into a a liquid program delivering around two kilograms of nitrogen per week um, with Strassbuster or some solubles or whatever. And this would allow us to maintain those intensively managed playing surfaces appropriately. But we might need to adjust up slightly at specific agronomic pinch points, such as the time when anthracnose tends to come into the game and so we might choose to just anticipate that or back off slightly with the intensity of our maintenance towards the end of summer or during autumn we might increase growth levels for a short period of time by delivering say three to four kilograms of nitrogen per week uh, through weeks 40 to 44 maybe a k-step six percent nitrogen at 25 grams per meter squared to get us through a renovation schedule and then settle back to two kilograms of nitrogen per week through the autumn from weeks 45 to 52 to maintain plant health and positively contribute to our autumn ITM strategy along with everything else of course um, you get the idea Glenn we're, we're setting the nitrogen inputs to achieve an agronomic purpose yeah and when you lay it out as a kind of weekly figure like that Henry and I can plan it through the year it seems pretty simple yeah, yeah, I probably lost you a little bit with with the talk of all the figures. But yeah, it is simple. Uh, and and once people get a, a handle on sort of orchestrating those responses, you know, everything becomes a lot easier and everything becomes a lot more efficient. You know, you end up using less fertiliser if you take this approach. So anyway, how much do you reckon I applied, Glenn? Uh, were you paying attention or did I lose you completely with all those figures? Well, I don't know, Henry. <laughs> There was a lot of numbers in there. I'm yeah, usually pretty was. good on my maths. I'm going to go 130 to 140 units of N for the year. Mm. Didn't feel ridiculous, but it did feel on the high level. Ah, OK. Well, it was actually 109 kilograms of mm. nitrogen for the year if you calculate it out. Interesting, Henry. Now... and. You even got cold start in there as well, didn't you? Yes, yeah, we did, actually. We, we're actually making some now, which is good news. Um, but, yeah, you know, uh, people always think that we're just trying to sort of flog unnecessary fertiliser, whereas actually what we're trying to do is target our nutrition. And this is what our team of area managers do for a living. You know, they know their fertilisers, they know their release patterns, they know their nitrogen sources and other nutrients, and they build their programmes that are tuned into the customer requirements, but based on sort of discussion and collaboration with their customers to just fine-tune those kind of nutritional responses. 
Okay, but what happens when things don't go to plan, Henry? The the weather isn't always the most reliable. No, the weather never goes to plan, Glenn. Uh, but by working with our team, the course managers would, would know how to adjust properly to work things around. And if the turf need, does need a bit of extra nutrition to support it, then we know that that's not the end of the world because we're always, you know, well within or below at times, you know, the accepted guideline figures. And I guess from that point of view, your team, your your group of good guys and ladies, um, mm. they're out there on the road, and but they're a bit more like agronomists and support than salespeople, aren't they? Well, a bit of both, actually, Glenn. Uh, they are a very good bunch. Um, but, they, you know, they want their programmes to be adopted and deployed properly, and so they're invested in them being taken up. But it's never a hard sell. Uh, it's always a technical exercise in collaboration with the customer. Most of the team were course managers or, 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 or groundspeople and so they are properly dialed in when it comes to the fundamental importance of the fertiliser programmes. Yeah, they are a good bunch. Um, thanks for that, Henry. That, that was very interesting and informative. Well, turf nutrition is a good subject, Glenn, and there's plenty more dis- to discuss throughout the year. But I should say as a full stop that if you are wanting to embark on a sward species composition change, then I think that you should focus on other agronomic factors rather than just trying to starve the poa out. But that discussion, Glenn, is for another day. Oh, the disturbance theory. It's getting closer, Henry. Yeah, I know you're not going to let me get away without talking about it at some point, are you? No, I'm not. I'm interested in that one. Well, at least someone is, Glenn, but I'm going to need to talk to Richard first. Well, that's it, Glenn. Another month in the bag. And as always... April is a really interesting time, isn't it? Yes, it certainly is, Henry. It's um, it's been highlighted to me pulling this together. Look, that's 12 months completed. Congratulations, Mm. Henry. How's it been for you? (laughs) Awful. How's it been for you? It's been emotional. Anyway, hopefully we'll be back next month. Looking forward to seeing everyone at BTME. And, um, yeah, good luck with the spring. Listen approaching on the horizon. (laughs) 